Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The mission of the Socially Relevant Film Festival is to shine a spotlight on filmmakers who tell compelling human interest stories across a broad range of social issues without resorting to gratuitous violence. Since its inception in 2013, the festival has presented close to 350 films from 35 countries. And this year's festival runs from March 16th through the 22nd at Lincoln Center, Cinema Village, and other venues. I'm very pleased to welcome the festival's founding artistic director, actress, filmmaker Nora Armani, to our show today, along with Dr. Teresa Muller, whose documentary film, Can't Stop the Sun from Shining, will be shown at the festival. Hello. Welcome Thank to both you. of you. Thank you. Thank you for receiving Thank us. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, Nora, you founded the Socially Relevant Film Festival in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, has it grown each year? What was la- yes. the first year like? <laughs> well, the first year was like sweating bullets, <laughs> if that gives you an idea of what that means. Because uh, you come up with a good idea and you say, wow, people are listening to you and saying, yes, of course, we need socially relevant films, but nobody's ready to bring out their checkbooks and <laughs> support the festival in a way that is meaningful. And what about finding sense. films? Well, people have to know that films, you're running a festival that their film might be appropriate for. Of course, because, well, there are film submission platforms uh, on which we advertised and put up the festival that we are receiving films and some filmmakers sent us. But in the six years, or this is the seventh annual edition, in the seven years that we have been operating, of course, submissions exponentially grew. Sure. Uh, because this, the... the reputation of the festival grew, people talked about it, filmmakers who had already been here told other filmmakers that this is a good festival, etc., etc. But uh, most of these films being seen in New York for the first time? Yes, that is a a condition for us because Mm -hmm. we are very strict on premiere status. A lot of the films, some of the films are from uh, uh, world premieres, some are North American premieres, some are um, New York State premieres or East Coast premieres, depends. But they have to be at least New York premieres. Uh, looking over the, the list uh, over the uh, years, uh, I thought if any number of the films could have, for example, one of the films, you, the opening film here, Antigone, yeah. which was uh, uh, California Canada's official sub, uh, submission to this year's Oscars, mm-hmm. uh, I was surprised that it didn't get a commercial run. It will. Uh-huh. But you <laughs> got it will. first. Yeah. Well, uh, we were able to get in touch with the distributors and convince them that, hey, this would be a good way of introducing the film. In fact, we are not the first ones showing it. It was already screened at a limited run, a limited one-time screening mm-hmm. at uh, Canada Now uh, earlier in, Octo- in February. Uh, but the film will be distributed uh, in May, I think. Uh, Dr. Miller, aren't you a, a medical doctor? Yes, I am. Uh, you had a long career in medicine, specializing in obstetrics and gynecology. Are you still practicing or no. teaching? You're making films now? Yes, I retired uh, in 2005. Had making movies always been something you'd wanted to do? No, I never thought I would do this. It's interesting. It was serendipity. <laughs> and then 10 years ago, you... Ten years ago, I retired, and I uh, went to Florence to study Italian, 
And where I was staying uh, with a couple, they had mentioned they would have wanted to go to Buenos Aires, where I was born and grew up, and would have. It was too expensive and too far away. And I said, "Oh, don't worry, I'll go and buy a DVD and bring it to you." <laughs> so I went to Buenos Aires, and uh, I couldn't find anything unless it was all tango or all food. <laughs> and I thought maybe I'll do it myself. And that's how it all started. Wow, so the, that's you amazing. started a production company that you call Doc to Doc Films. That's I guess doc, Doctor to Documentaries. Exactly, Doctor to Documentaries. So, do you find uh, filmmaking as rewarding as medicine? It is rewarding in the way uh, that I approach uh, the subject, and that is by interviewing people who have wonderful stories to tell others, and uh, and revealing. Uh, minorities or issues that are not touched upon uh, often. Uh -huh, but in this case, you have people who have long stories to tell. Your film, Can't Stop the Sun from Shining, is a documentary portrait of four women who range in age from 94 to 105 years old. Yes, indeed. <laughs> they are amazing. They are and really several of your subjects will be attending the screening on the 22nd? Well, uh, they were planning one, uh, the 95 now. It's uh, uh, touring around Japan giving uh, piano concerts uh, for victims of typhoon. I don't know if there are victims now of coronavirus around there. And from there, she's going to Taiwan to give master classes. And from there, she's going to Paris. Uh, she's only 95. She's the youngest one. She's the kid, <laughs> yes. It's, it's uh, the so 105 inspiring. was planning to attend, and so are the other three. But because of the coronavirus, I really don't know what's going to happen. Well, um, the youngest, the one that you were mentioning, Ruth, uh, forgive me for messing up her name, Slanchinska. Slanchinska, yes. Uh, she she uh, was a child prodigy, so yes. she's been playing for yes. a long, long time. Yes, yes. Has she been a professional musician pretty much all of her life? Yes, yes, she did. Uh, she uh, studied with uh, Nadia Boulanger and mm. uh, Alfred Cortot and uh, Arthur Rubinstein and um, yeah, and played with uh, Fiedler, the Boston Pops, and uh, you name it. Uh, how did you find these four women? How did I find them? Yeah. Um, because they, they are not, you just couldn't go to a uh, retirement home. <laughs> no, <laughs> none anyway, of them are in a retirement home. No, because they're so alive and lively. Yes, that, they're uh, amazing. Yes. The 105, I know, actually, she calls herself 105.4 at this moment. <laughs> uh, she's like, she, she, when she was 104, she said 104.3. She says, I'm like a radio station. And um, uh, so I know her since 1983 uh, because I have a place where she uh, resides on Long Island. Uh, the 95, the pianist, I uh, met through uh, my sound engineer, uh, Joseph Patrick, who uh, knows a lot of people in the music world. Uh, the other two I met through a pianist, a friend of mine, Dr. Lavandera, who teaches at Stony Brook Piano, and uh, he knew... Uh, the uh, woman who came from Cologne, uh, from Germany. She uh, wrote a book, My Exciting uh, Journey to 96, and uh, uh, she had an event at the Steinway Piano uh, uh, Studio here in New York City, and uh, my friend, the pianist, was there, and that's how I got to her. Now, did she live through the, the Nazi era in Germany? Yeah, yeah. Born in Cologne, yes. but escaped, in escaped to London. Yes, yeah, she went to London. And, and then, then here. Yes, 
Yes. And what was her profession? She became <laughs> she became a PhD in biology and worked until the age of 94 teaching at NYU. Wow. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah, amazing. And then uh, there's uh, Adele Gordon, who's Adele from Ireland. Gordon. Yeah, she's from Ireland. She came. Uh, yeah, she came when she was, uh, yeah, very four or five. Actually, her name was not Adele. Her name was Bridget, but she said that when she uh, was taken to school, a nun school, a mother superior told her that Bridget was not a good name to have because it was for people who uh, clean houses or <laughs> served. Ooh. So they called her Adele because that was mother superior's name. <laughs> so <laughs> she seems so to have had the most traditional life. Yes, just concentrate on motherhood yes. and family. Yes. Uh, but uh, getting back to the uh, the oldest, Ruth Dodo Burke. Oh, Dodo. She was born in the Bronx in 1914, and we see her in the film uh, at her 105th birthday party dancing and, and yes. telling jokes. <laughs> yes, and she's still, uh, I see her often. I went to see her some weeks ago, and uh, she sang again her famous uh, song, the Sinatra song, uh, for well, about three minutes. She, had, she has a perfect uh, mind, but she said her mind is intact, it's just her body that is not intact <laughs> and so the uh do, do you see these women as having anything in common other than they seem to have positive attitudes towards life well that's pretty much uh very important and meaningful uh i think well, for you can anyone. have a positive attitude toward life and still die at 62 of course yeah. but but if you arrive to a later age with that it helps mm because there are people who are younger and don't have the zest or the uh, power to, to confront life, and yeah. they will be old at the age of 30 or it's, 40. It's sad. I need to interject here because there are 20-year-olds today that are, and in fact, to, to speak of another couple of films that we have in the programming, it's about teenage suicide. Mm. I was and that's get to a that. very, very powerful topic. We have a documentary about it, which uh, is called Tell My Story, about a 14-year-old kid who killed himself. And look at the difference, like the parallels between somebody who makes it to 105 and another one who wants out at 14. And then another uh, narrative feature called Butter, which takes a more comedic view about it, which includes body shaming and bullying and a fat guy who is uh, kind of deciding to kill himself because of that. But of course, it's a comedy, so it, in the end, it turns around. But these are very important topics because the zest for life is what brings these women to live into their hundreds and also the difficulties they've been through. Nowadays, youth has kind of have it easy and they don't kind of think about. But then these people have seen wars, they've seen holocausts, they've seen famines, they have seen a lot of things. And if have, they've made it through all this, it's not now that they're going to say, oh, okay, I'll give up. You're screening Dr. Miller's film on the 22nd at Cinema Village. Yes, yes, at 3.30 p.m. on Sunday. Now, the, the opening day... Uh, 
is uh, is at uh, the Eleanor Boone and Monroe Film Center at Lincoln Center with Antigone. I mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier. Right. Uh, also a short film called A Call it's for Peace. It's actually a documentary. Oh, it's a documentary. minutes, yeah. And we have the filmmaker on the line. Mm, excellent. So uh, let's go to Melody Carley. Hi, you're, you're on. Uh, Hi, Let I it locate yes. at large. Hi. Thank you for having me. Can we talk a bit about your film? Of course, I would love to. <laughs> Ask away. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's a documentary. What's it about? So uh, A Call for Peace is, uh, is really about uh, international peace processes that have been made around the world. And um, it, talks, it, it talks about all the peace processes around the world and most uh, specifically about the latest uh, peace process uh, which was the successful one in Colombia. Uh, so um, we actually retraced, you know, how to make peace and how was this peace process was made was made successfully uh, by retracing the um, the technique that the president Santos at the time has used uh, to actually make it a successful peace process. And so we had a tremendous experience traveling around the world and um, and going to find the actors who played a key role into making this uh, peace process successful. Now, uh, since it can be a success, uh, will you be sending a copy to President Trump and to the, the leaders of the Taliban? Uh, we, we are actually... <laughs> Uh, we're actually hoping that uh, this documentary is is a tool, an educational tool for other peace processes. And, and some of the participants that we actually did interview are currently working in other peace processes, such as Philippines and the Middle East and uh, in uh, North Korea as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, that That's... gives you a good idea that the techniques that were used then in Colombia are pretty uh, are very decent and can definitely help current governments uh, stabilize the situation. And, and is the yeah. peace in Colombia going to be a lasting peace, do you think? Or? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the key aspect that we actually uh, revealed in the documentary is that there are really two aspects in, in peace, peacemaking. So you have the peacemaking and the peace-building aspect. And then the most difficult part of any peace process, I guess, is is the implementation phase of a process, you know. Uh, if you look at a, a, a peace process and a war, in a long-lasting war in Colombia, we're talking about more than 250,000 people who have lost their lives, about uh, more than between 45, I believe 45,000 children who have actually been, uh, who have been killed and millions of people displaced. And so you're looking at a long-running conflict for more than 50 years. And a lot of people, you know, imagine then once you sign a paper, the peace happens. But unfortunately, it's only when peace can begin. Yeah. So it's, it's a long process. And I think we try to highlight that the best we could in the documentary because a lot of people do not know uh, what happened behind the scene when a peace process happened because a lot of the talks and negotiation actually happen uh, behind closed doors. That's partly why we decided to open the festival with this very important film. But you pair it with Antigone, which has little to do with it. No, Antigone is about 
immigration uh, and oh right, yeah. we'll talk about that in yeah. a little bit <laughs> and refugees yeah. and all that. Actually, the reason why we decided to open with this is because uh, the idea behind the festival came as an anti-violence festival mm-hmm. first and foremost. Because I That's had why so many of the filmmakers are women? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. I mean, there are some very important films, like one about um, um, the Tibetan mm-hmm. uh, story, we, we like, etc., which are male-directed, but still. Um, <clears throat> because I had gone uh, really sick and tired of seeing violence on movie posters. Mm-hmm. If, it, if a movie is about violence, you can choose not to go see it. But if a poster is staring at you at a bus stop, on the bus, and everywhere else, then you are being invaded with that violence, and you have no choice. So I decided to offer an alternative uh, form of entertainment, plus a personal story that happened to my cousin and my uncle who were stabbed to death Hmm. resulting from a violent hate crime. So I decided to do a film festival anti-violence, which then expanded to include all the other social issues. So a call for peace is very, very important. Hmm. Now, uh, Teresa Villar, you you come from Brazil. No, Argentina. Oh, from Argentina. Oh, yes. I, I thought it was Brazil. You no. were, oh, Buenos Aires. What am I saying? Okay. It's okay. But there's been a lot of violence in in uh, South America over the years. Colombia's uh, there's one still of the violence. Ones. Actually, right. my my brother was held hostage at the beginning of February in his own home uh, oh with uh, his uh, wife and uh, for three hours blindfolded and hit in the head. Uh, it's been violent always since I grew up. I never knew about democracy. I only knew about dictators in my country. Uh, I never got to uh, vote. And I was I was very happy when I came to America then. <laughs> <laughs> we have our own problems. Yes. My guests are Dr. Teresa Miller, who is one of the filmmakers uh, being featured in this year's Socially Relevant Film Festival. Her film is called Can't Stop. Uh, the Sun from Shining. We have uh, uh, on the phone uh, Melody Carley, who is one of the directors of a film called A Call for Peace, and uh, uh, the director, the founding director, uh, artistic director of the festival, uh, Nora Armani, here. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. So uh, you don't really have a theme do you, Nora, other than you don't want violence in the films? No, that's not true. <laughs> we do have themes which we do not decide ahead of time, meaning we don't go out and say next year's festival is going to be about this, that, that, and the other. We look at what the filmmakers are proposing to us. We go to the submissions and look at the best films, of course. They have to be top-notch in uh, uh, production values. And based on the themes in these films, we program the festival. Like, especially the shorts are put together into thematic programs. The themes of the short programs this year are about uh, gun violence. We have one that has the title uh, Gun Culture USA. Then there is another one about medicine and health issues. A third one is about um, Palestine and Israel 
issues that come up with some very humorous ones about a beer brewing company. <laughs> For once, it's not the conflict as such. And then uh, we have... Um, on Friday, we have uh, ancestral lands and indigenous people's rights. We have LGBTQ rights and women, of course, predominantly. So these are the themes of the shorts. And the feature films, uh, narrative features, have bullying, have mental health, have um, immigration, refugees. And these are the themes that keep uh, floating to the surface, so Some, to say. Sometimes you're ahead of the curve. Last year, we talked about the festival, and one of the films was about the invasion of privacy from uh, Google and Facebook and, and others. And uh, that was before so many <laughs> things started hitting the, the, the news. Uh, the, you were you were way ahead of the curve. <laughs> well, thank you for the mentioning that because, yeah, I mean, sometimes a film is uh, submitted to us and it just springs out. And, for example, uh, Teresa's film is one of those because Can't Stop the Sun from Shining, I started reading the synopsis and I go, oh, my God, a, a film about four centenarian women? This must be incredible. So I start reading it and... I keep fingers crossed that the quality of it is good, and then we watched it, and we find out that, yes, of course, we can screen it, and that's how it it works. Well, another one of the films we talked about last year was about women who make films, and here we are. Uh, two of my guests are women who make films, uh, documentaries. Do you think that, uh, Melody, do you think that women are more likely to make documentaries because you don't have to get the kind of funding that you do uh, to make a, a big feature film. Uh, the, most of the, the women who make big feature films are actresses, famous actresses, who, who say, I want to make a movie. Well, I think you do have uh, various, uh, various documentaries that can be made out there, uh, depending on the scope of work, depending on the, the, the research and what you're trying to achieve in this documentary. It can be highly you know, uh, expensive as well. Um, and it does not mean because it's not a, a full movie that the, uh, the, the funding isn't uh, necessary. For example, for Call for Peace, uh, we had to travel all around the world to actually follow the people in their own environment. So all the international negotiators who had worked with Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, President Santos at the time, we had to go see them in their hometown to you know, reach out to them and find them in their own elements and to, to have them explain to us uh, you know, what was the process, what, what did the process leave them with, you know, personally, because it does affect, uh, it does affect uh, a person when you work on a peace process like this. And so we had to travel around the world. It obviously has, uh, you know, tremendous expenses. Uh, we were lucky to collaborate with wonderful partners like the European Union and the United Nations, uh, who has, you know, who greatly helped us all along the way. And um, and so, yeah, I, I do believe, to come back to your point earlier, I do believe that Nora is doing an amazing job at coming up with, you know, uh, great, uh, great choices for her festivals, just because this year, for example, is the 25th uh, anniversary of the Beijing Agreement, focusing on, on women, and women is, uh, is a big topic. So once again, Nora, I think you're doing the right the, the right choice in, in picking your, your directors and producers for movies and documentaries because 
this year is is mainly focusing on on women and and, and equality, gender equality. So thank you. Soon for we're going to bring a, yeah. a man who <laughs> is also in the festival into this conversation. But I wonder about documentaries in another way because you don't have to have a big film crew. Uh, you can do them. Sure. Uh, it's big. It's a, there's a big difference between doing a big commercial film, even if you're Very not, true. even if you're not going to have explosions and things like that. You still have to have. Uh, yeah, have, well, uh, sound people and uh, uh, cinematographers and uh, yes. all sorts of uh, continuity people, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, we we do have a, we do have a, a rather small team, I would say, operating. We try to be uh, also non-invasive when we non-invasive uh, when we do travel to certain places. Um, so I guess that makes it easier as well when we go and film. And of course, the, the budget is completely different when making a, a documentary. Uh, but it also gives us, you know, more flexibility. And I think, um, you know, we, we talked about this topic last year at the World TV Day at the United Nations. And, and I always said, you know, no matter how much you have to say or how little you can impact the world out there and make, you know, give some recognition for the people who are doing an amazing job out there that are not necessarily recognized, you as a director or as a producer, you you have... You know, just like a singer has a microphone to express himself, you have a camera to express yourself and to kind of promote the work of that others are doing out there. And I think it's a it's a wonderful place to be in. Um, and just like the other uh, women that we have on the phone, I never thought myself as, you know, ever making a documentary. But just by experiencing what's happening in this world, I say we really need to document these people who are making a change in, in our everyday lives, you know. Will you just stay with us as well on the phone? We're going to bring in another filmmaker who is sure. uh, has contributed something to the festival, Raffaello uh, Degrotola. Or is it Tola or Toya? Uh, Degrotola. Uh, your film is Transference, a bipolar love story, uh, a psychological drama. I think it is. That was the hope. So tell us about it. Uh, two people well, fall in love, but then a, a secret history of mental illness comes between them. That's correct. Um, just before I go into it, I, I did want to apologize. I've got the time difference all wrong. I'm uh, in London at the moment, and I thought that I had another hour on my side before calling you, so I apologize about no, that. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, yeah. Well, with, the, with regards to the film... Um, I wanted to tell a story that um, I think affects us today in a very sort of delicate way, the way these kind of issues from our past um, intrude themselves into our current situation in, in re new relationships without us really knowing what's happening. And having spoken to a psychotherapist uh, whilst I was making this film, who sort of really neatly pointed out that Nick and Katerina met for a reason, even though in their world it felt like, oh, it was it was a you know a coincidence. It, it was when they passed, but actually there's something in their subconscious that draws them together, and that is part of the um, them repeating patterns from their past, and until they fix it, they will keep falling back into those types of relationships. Because people are afraid to get treatment for mental illness, uh, they're they're. Because they're ashamed of it? Um, I'm not sure they're afraid. I'm not even sure they're aware 
sometimes. Because you're talking about a, a mental illness and the spectrum is broad. Mm -hmm. And so um, let's say that this kind of mental illness initially in this story anyway, is um, <clears throat> that they, they're not aware of their troubles or they might be, but it's not, they're able to function every day in their jobs, etc. And so they think, you know, I'll just push that aside and move on. Um, but when they get involved with each other in the way they treat each other, it potentially uh, has its roots in relationships they've had in the past with probably their parents or they've seen something in their parents and the way they behave and they take that upon themselves and they don't realize it. So it's all subconscious patterns. And I kind of felt like I wanted to tell the story almost like a grandfather clock in the corner as you see the relationship move on from one moment to the next and the passion at first and then the small corrosion and how it affects the way they interact with one another. And especially in this case, Katerina wants to protect herself when she feels she's getting too close, so she starts to damage the relationship. And that triggers his old patterns and how he damages himself for it. And what did you base the story on? Well, I loosely based it, uh, if I'm honest, on uh, my parents. Um, they were immigrants to the UK. They came here when they were very young. Um, my father developed uh, bipolar wow. quite early in his 20s. And, um, I mean, this is my perspective, and my mum didn't really understand it. Mm. And he couldn't <clears throat> articulate it. Um, and it, it was definitely the beginning of the end of their relationship although they lasted 25 years together it was a very difficult uh time especially when the bipolar would kick in and i wondered as i was growing up because i always saw both their points of view was there ever anything in the way she behaved that triggered the mm. worst part of his behavior that was my question Dr. Muller, is this something that you've witnessed in, in your medical practice, although you weren't uh, in psychology? No, I, yes, uh, indeed, I was in gynecology the other end. Um, uh, <laughs> um, sorry to say, but uh, um, I was always uh, fascinated by the field of psychology and psychiatry. Uh, well, you must have had a few bipolar patients. Uh, some. Uh, I think it's not that, that uncommon. Uh, uh, it's not uncommon but I think it can be masked uh, mm. in a conscious or unconscious way as we are listening to this filmmaker. Um, it is a pathology that uh, might be uh, hidden in ways uh, and therefore um, we can't uh, address it properly. Mm. That's the most important reason for which we have decided to include this film. Although personally, I shy away from personal stories since this is a socially relevant film festival and we want to focus on social issues. But I think mental illness is a very much of a social issue in the sense that when somebody sees a story like this on the screen and they have similar situations either in themselves or in members of their family or immediate entourage, they can understand what is going on. And the most difficult situation with mental illness is the fact of not understanding what goes on and not accepting and not getting treatment. Now, the, the British National Health 
approach uh, has been an issue in American politics recently. Uh, if people have problems like bipolar disorders, uh, are is it difficult for them to get good medical treatment? Hello. Um, sorry. Yeah, I I, I think uh, it's it's not it, it's not once they're in the system. Um, I think. I mean, I'm not the most uh, qualified uh, um, in terms of talking about bipolar just the way I wanted to build this story. But mm -hmm. I, it's very good in terms of once you're in, if you're somebody who wants help, you will get help. I think part of the problem is, uh, as far as I've seen, that people don't accept they have it. And I know there's two different types of bipolar, so depending on which one you have, one is more extreme than the other. In uh, Nick's case, in our film, it's the least uh, extreme um, because I really wanted to tell that it, it, there's a gray area in terms of his personality and bipolar. It's really not just a story about bipolar, to be honest. It's a, it's, it's a story about the, the mix of cultural displacement, personality differences, clashes, and then, you know, some mental illness in there as well. Um, but going back to your question, I think, you know, we're really well placed in the UK for help providing the individual wants it or has a family around them that can help. And, and going back to Nora's uh, point, if I may, for a second, although it's very loosely based on my parents' story, it's not a personal story. The film took on um, a world of its own, which story as such but it was it has roots in that kind of uh, relationship we are talking about the socially relevant film festival on today's Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM thinking about the time that's passed in my life wondering Actress filmmaker Nora Armani, who is the founding artistic director of the Socially Relevant Film Festival, now in its seventh year. Wow. Uh, and it is uh, at a number of venues, which we will discuss in a moment. Also with us are Dr. Teresa Mular, whose documentary film Can't Stop the Sun from Shining will be shown at the festival. And uh, I, I think you're still on the, the line, right, Melody? Yes. Melody uh, Carley, who is uh, one of the directors of A Call for Peace, and Raffaello uh, Degretola, whose uh, film is called Transference, uh, Bipolar Love Story. Uh, there's another narrative film, uh, 
Nora, in, in the festival called Foster Boy, which looks at the case in which a known sex offender is put into a foster home with other children and the lawyer who takes it to court. And that's based on, on a, a real case. Yeah, that's a true story, and that those stories fascinate us. But more than being a story about that particular lawyer and his experiences, it uh, sheds light on the foster care system. And Matthew Modine and uh, Lou Gossett Jr. are also starring in that film. So we are very happy to have that film. Uh, and as you see, the, it's a range of uh, offerings we try to offer. There's mental health, the foster care well, system. You mentioned bullying, butter earlier. Butter. Which has a shocking uh, premise, an obese teenager who decides to eat himself to death. Yes, <laughs> but in the end... In response to fat shaming? Uh, absolutely. And in the end, his social media, explodes and all these people are signing in so suddenly he likes the fame that comes with it so he changes his mind and, you know, it's like it gave him a reason to live absolutely <laughs> we, we talked about the, the film that's opening the festival at the Eleanor Boone and Monroe uh, Film Center and Lincoln Center uh, Antigone the Canadian film mm -hmm. Canada's official submission to this year's Oscars um it's a modern take on the Greek tragedy by Sophocles? Right. It is a very loose adaptation, I must say, which is masterfully done by Sophie Derespi, who is the director. Unfortunately, she can't be with us uh, because she's all over the place trying to promote the film, which was Canada's submission to the Oscars this year. And it shows the story of this uh, young woman, young girl, Antigone, and her dedication to her family to the extent of sacrificing herself for her brothers and uh, just like in the real classical Antigone. But the family in question are uh, immigrants in Canada. They are um, Kabyles from Algeria. And so it gives another layer, very important layer, about immigration and refugees and police brutality there is a moment there which triggers the entire story. And you've paired it with Melanie uh, Carley's film, uh, A Call for Peace. Yes, that is our opening night, and it so talks about... So you have a feature film, and you have a, a documentary. Yeah, a documentary starts at 6.30 with a red carpet at 6 o'clock, so please come and be on our red carpet. And then 6.30, the documentary, with 7.30, the welcome speech for the festival, followed by uh, Antigone. Is it uh, scary to put together a film festival at this moment in time because of the coronavirus scare? Well, Yes and no. The fact is that we didn't put it together during the virus scare. We had already been yes, putting it together know, for a long time. But of course, it concerns us very much so. Currently, I'm doing a play uh, at Columbia University's new Lenfest Center, and the production has decided to limit size of audiences to only 25 in a, a theater that seats 99. And we are taking the same precautions. Of course, we are asking people to follow the directives, wash their hands, and everybody knows by now what they're supposed to do, but also trying to cap audience attendance so that at least there is one seat between <laughs> audience members. So we're not canceling unless there is a clear d directive that all cinemas have to close, which Meanwhile, at least at this point we haven't gotten yet. Yes. You wanted to say something, Teresa. Uh, oh. 
No, I'm just concerned, of course, because my film includes uh, these older women who were planning to be at the cinema. and uh, The elderly are the most vulnerable. Yes. 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 Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm just concerned with that uh, because it would have been very nice to have them in vivo, mm. uh, not just in the film, and they were willing to come. But, um, Did they live nearby, most of them? Uh, well, one one lives in Florida, but mm. she uh, and her son, the one who came from Cologne, from Germany, she was planning. She's planning to come. Uh, they actually said that they couldn't get uh, air uh, plane or because of the restrictions. They were planning to. They're planning to drive in mm. uh, wow. from Florida because airfare is so cheap now. Yes, <laughs> but I think that she's ninety-seven by now, and I don't think that she, uh, her son, wants to take a chance. Mm. So that's the concern as far as my film. Now, the, the, the film will be shown at Cinema Village. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. How do you decide which films to show at which venue? Because there are a number of other venues right, as well. Right, right. Well, we tried to see what would interest most the people that are around that particular venue. Like, for example, on Tuesday the 17th, we are at Hunter College, Lang Auditorium. This morning, I have gotten confirmation that that show is going on because Hunter College is closed for classes, but the events and performances are still going on. And, so how, and how can listeners find out about all of them? Do you oh, have a website? Yes, absolutely. The website is rated srfilms.org. Rated like ratings, R-A-T-E-D-S-R for socially relevant, films in the plural, rated srfilms.org. Everything is there. Let me throw this out to all of the filmmakers uh, who are with us. What do you get as a filmmaker from showing at a festival like this? Uh, Is it a way to find distribution? Dr. Millar? Well, um, I would hope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) do, Do people from HBO and PBS and... Uh, places like that uh, come to festivals like this to, to uh, find films? I'm, I'm not sure who exactly is coming to this particular festival. Uh, in other festivals I have attended, uh, uh, there are distributors that uh, come in and uh, discuss uh, the films with the uh, if I may interject sure. on that, we you, have... You're the one who would know best. Yeah. <laughs> we have industry partners who support us, like Cinema Libre Studio is a distribution company. Indie Picks is another distribution company. Aspect Ratio is a third distribution company. We've pa- in the past, we've also worked Candy uh, Factory and so on and so forth. And these people who are the kind of distributors that are likely to be interested in the kind of films that we show, it's more important to pair off the right distributor with the right film because it's not going to be some of the big Hollywood distributors who would be interested in these films. And we also have this year a workshop, one-on-one meetings with um, Jordan Matos, who is a local New York-based distributor with Aspect Ratio and Indepix. He's been uh, distributing films for the past 10 years and uh, linked very strongly with a lot of international film festivals and markets. And he is taking one-on-one meetings with the filmmakers who have signed up for his sessions to give advice, to help them package, and also to pick up some of his uh, the films. Raffaello has Transference uh, been shown in England? Um, no, not yet. Premier, actually. So we're getting a kind of, we're almost getting a, a world, an international premiere here? 
are. We did a private kind of community uh, screening with the Italian Red Cross in Lake Garda, uh, but this is our world premiere in terms of festivals. And I must say, um, going back to your question, the credibility that it gives the film to be selected um, is, is the first step, and which is what the Socially Relevant Film Festival has done for our film. And back to the second we were... Uh, selected in competition. I've already had a couple of people come forward to wa wanting to discuss distribution, which is, is quite fantastic for us. So that's really the, the process for us is firstly from a filmmaker to get it into a festival that's, that has a good reputation and, and like this one. And then it kind of finds its place in the world after that, actually. Yeah, no. thank you for bringing that up because besides the one-on-one -on -one face to face that in the past we've also done panels on distribution and things like that, but if a film is already in a festival selection, then it gives it a strength to go forward and talk to a distributor. And Dr. Malo, your films including this one have won numerous awards at film festivals around the world. How important are those awards in in uh, allowing you to continue making films? Well, um, I think it is um, it is a stimulus. Uh, um, uh, it gives me an impetus uh, uh, to be recognized for what I do, especially this uh, career not being uh, the one that I went to school for. <laughs> and so um, I think uh, being recognized in a way allows me to move forward and uh, keep telling stories. One of the, the films, uh, Microplastic Madness, is about the plastic pollution crisis. Uh, that it was made with fifth graders from PS15 in Red Hook, Brooklyn, right here mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> Red Hook is a community on the front line of climate change, uh, severely impacted by Superstorm Sandy. What did they do to address the challenge? That is interesting. Uh, we just got attracted to that film, A, because it was made by youngsters who are really concerned at the grassroots of uh, the climate change, like uh, Greta Thunberg, who was roaming the world and getting the message out there about the young people being so concerned about their She's future. She's just announced it's all going to be online yeah. because of coronavirus. <laughs> That, and the f the film is scheduled at Hunter College, exactly to answer your earlier question, because we thought it's very important for the college community to be introduced to this film. And it's uh, preceded with the shorts uh, collection, Gun Violence, mm -hmm. which is about gun culture USA. And we have a couple of experts who are going to be there to do Q&As on both films. Th that, that issue seems to have stalled in this country. Can films make a difference, do you think? I hope so. <laughs> I really do. Uh, there are, uh, well, you, you do choose the venue uh, with certain things in mind, obviously. For example, uh, the film about Palestine will be at uh, at Lebanese University. Yes, that's right. The films about there are three films. One of them is called um, Just Before Dawn. It's about the destruction after Gaza bombings and all that. The second one is called Ibrahim's Tree, which is also about destruction and the olive tree that the family has built in the name of their little boy who has been killed and so on. 
But the third one is quite interesting. It's called Brood in Palestine. It's about a brewery mm -hmm. and how the conflict affects the distribution of the beer. We were hoping well, to get alcohol, some Well, because Muslims it, can't drink alcohol. It's not allowed, yes. But this family happens to be a Christian Palestinian family. And it's important to stress the fact that Palestinians come in all shapes and sizes. They're not all Muslim. So uh, it's very important uh, film. And we also have programmed two other films along with that uh, which came later because we earlier we spoke about the CSW, NGO CSW, United Nations 64th anniversary of Beijing and the Women's uh, Forum and the conferences. Our festival was one of the forums that was canceled. Uh, the UN Secretary General's uh, order came out and canceled over 500 forum uh, uh, gatherings where thousands of women from all over the world attend. And in that, we were supposed to show a collection of short films on climate change, women, and the, how women pay the highest price. And of course, that being canceled, we reprogrammed two of the films, Fly High, about marriage rape, and another one, Leaving to Live, uh, which is about domestic violence in the same program as the Palestinian shorts. There are a number of films that seem to be perfectly uh, perfect to pair with Dr. Muller's film. You have Mother of Tibetans, about a woman who decides to have a meaningful life after entering pension age and founds a group called German Aid to Tibetans. And then another one, a documentary, Birth Wars, chronicles a, a power struggle between doctors and midwives mm -hmm. in Mexico uh, mm -hmm. about whose vision of childbirth should prevail. Mm -hmm. Dr. Muller, yes. uh, have you seen it? I haven't seen this, this film. I will. Uh, yes, what, I, I saw the trailer. What's your opinion about the place of midwifery in, in medicine? I think that as long as they are supervised and uh, delivered uh, in the right place uh, and uh, delivering a, a patient that has no complications, I uh, accept that. I have seen patients uh, that uh, were not uh, following that, and I had to take care of a lady who uh, came through the emergency room. She was a midwife, delivered by a midwife in her house of a very large baby that was more than 10 pounds, and she came with hemorrhage, mm. and the patient refused to mm, receive any medications because she believed in all natural ways of handling her. And uh, it was only until she went into shock that I was able to have an anesthesiologist and take care of her problems. So I think that as long as the patient, uh, the midwife, uh, have uh, backup uh, at an institution, then it's, it's all right. Another documentary, Birth Wars, chronicles a power struggle between, oh, well, uh, oh, I mentioned that one, but then there's Inside Outside about women and mass incarceration in the United States as they struggle with sexual assault, substance abuse, and motherhood. Where's that film from? Well, that is a U.S. production by Nandini Sikand, who is one of the filmmakers who has been awarded for her earlier short film a couple of years ago in our film festival. We like to keep in touch with filmmakers who have been with us before, and this was a nice case where we loved the film. 
it's kind of whoever has seen Orange is the New Black, it's kind of that setup, mm. only completely different on its take because it talks about the mass incarceration and how it uh, affects women more than anything else because we talk about mass incarcerations in the United States, but we talk about it affecting certain males of mm. racial uh, profile, but women are left out of the equation all the time. We have virtually no time left, but I want to mention there are also films about transgender activists, the legalized pot industry in Colorado, teenage suicide, environmental destruction in Australia. Uh, you're covering a wide range of topics, and wow. I assume the Australian <laughs> film was made before the recent devastating forest fires. Yes, it was made before the forest fires, but it affects the indigenous populations in exactly the same way as the forest fires do. And we are going to show a very short one-minute clip before uh, updating the situation mm. at, uh, as it is currently. Because so many of these films really are about ongoing issues. Exactly. The moment you lock your film, the issue has already changed. So what do you do? <laughs> I want to thank you all for participating. Uh, fi any final words, Raffaello or, or Melody? I just want to say thank you for having me, and thank you, Nora. I look forward to meeting you next week. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Thank and remember, you, thank can you, you can still come to the United States from England. Yes. You just can't yes. from other countries <laughs> in Europe. I know. Some of our filmmakers, unfortunately, are held back because of this ban, but we totally understand, and we'll try to do our best. I don't know if the cinema can allow or has the equipment for our Skype interviews. We'll try to set it up if there is such possibility. And, and a reminder that the Socially Relevant Film Festival begins next week, March 16th, that's Monday, and runs until the 22nd. And again, your email address if people want to see a list of uh, the It's uh, ratedsrfilms.org. That's the website. All the information... SR standing for socially relevant. Yeah, ratedsrfilms.org. And you'll find uh, schedules, films, tickets, anything you need. Thank you so much. I wanted to thank Nora Armani uh, for uh, having such a great uh, festival and reputation and selecting my film. And uh, Leonard Lopez, I want to thank you for giving me the uh, privilege. The, pre uh, the pleasure uh, was all mine. Really. Yeah, thank, likewise you. thank you so here. much. I would thank like so to much. thank you, Leonard, because it was a pleasure last year, yes. and now we come back to do our annual well, encounter. Well, we'll see you next year. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. Don't forget to, don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can leave your comments on any of those sites. So we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Jim Al-Khalili will discuss his book, The World According to Physics. We're going to be talking about science tomorrow, and we'll see you then.